So as we concluded the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John uh, several weeks ago, we expounded upon God's sovereignty in his guidance of the hearts of men and the words from their mouths, namely the prophecy of uh, Caiaphas. As we read in chapter 11, verses 51 and 52, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. The, uh, the Apostle John continues to inform us of the division among the people, those who reject Jesus Christ and those who believe upon him. As we have seen in earlier in these chapters of the Gospel of John, the Jewish leaders persist in their desire to arrest Jesus, but his hour has not yet come. As we read in 1154, Jesus retreated with his disciples to Ephraim for this reason, because his time had not yet come. As we have turned the page now to open the 12th chapter, we have now arrived at the beginning of Passion Week, the week in which our Lord and Savior will lay down his life for his sheep as he has promised. And as we read in John chapter 10, as we find him here, he is once again in Bethany, the town in which Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived, the same town in which Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, because of this miracle, the raising of Lazarus, many were excited at the opportunity to see Jesus and were looking forward to the Feast of Passover, which was to, to take place in just six days. But today, we see him the Sabbath before the Passover, the last Sabbath of the Old Covenant. Jesus is being honored with a dinner. It is an evening dinner. We know from the accounts of the other Gospels that it was held in the home of Simon the leper. What an amazing dinner this must have been. Not only is Lazarus there, the former dead man, but so is Simon, who is now no longer a leper. The obvious answer to how he has been healed is the person for whom this celebratory meal is being served. They are not there to celebrate Simon or to celebrate Lazarus. They are there to celebrate the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of the widespread news of the raising of Lazarus, many show up in Bethany. The miracle of Lazarus has been, been being raised from the dead has been such a powerful miracle in the ministry of Jesus Christ that the, priest, the chief priests not only want Jesus dead, but they also want to kill Lazarus. Lazarus literally stands as a living testimony to the deity of Christ. And thus, his existence threatens their positions of power. And they can't tolerate this. And so they, they plot to kill not only Jesus, but to kill Lazarus. In our passage this morning, we read of the crystallized division among the people. The gospel... Jesus himself divides. As he says, he comes to bring a sword. And we see this in this account. This division of those who follow him 
and accept him as the Lord Jesus Christ and those who deny him. It is symbolized in the extremes of Mary in her devotion to Christ and in Judas in his rejection of Christ. Mary's devotion to Christ is a limitless devotion that stands today as a great example of how we are to approach our life and our devotion to Christ. While Judas's rejection demonstrates to us the hatred of the heart that is turned against him. While Mary's act of worshiping Christ could only come from a heart that has, been, that has seen and tasted that he indeed is good, Judas's heart is one that worships himself through the pursuit of money and through being the, the, uh, the thief that he is. Though Judas has spent the last three years in the presence of Christ, experiencing his grace and learning his teachings, he still rejects him. How amazing this is that he could have spent all this time with Christ, but yet in the end reject him. To reject him in the way that he does. But Mary's worship of Jesus is not just of her hands and her hair, but it is a true worship that comes from her heart, that is filled, that fills the room with the smell of this ointment. Her actions are set in complete contrast to Judas's words for us to evaluate today where we stand in our re heart's response to Christ. Do we truly value him above all? Is he indeed the Lord of our lives? Is he the focus of our love and our devotion? Do you see Mary's gift of devotion and worship of Jesus as being fitting? Or do you today, like Judas, see it as simply a great waste? Are you like Mary, pouring out your most valuable, valuable possessions and wiping the feet of your Lord and Savior with your hair? In evaluating those questions, let us examine this morning three characteristics of the devotion that Mary has to Christ. And beginning at characteristic number one, Mary's devotion to Christ is bold and courageous. If you're taking notes, characteristic number one is Mary's devotion to Christ is bold and courageous. <clears throat> it is bold and courageous in the face of danger that she risks for following him. As we have just read, they are already seeking <coughs> to kill Lazarus and Christ. And to follow him is to put oneself in danger. But it's even more so for Mary because Mary, Mary's anointing Jesus was a huge risk for Mary because in the Pharisaical law, she as a woman could have been arrested and stoned for simply unbinding her hair. But we see her sacrificing even what appears to be almost sacrificing herself in her devotion to Christ in this act of anointing his feet and then unbinding her hair and, and, and wiping his feet with it. She was literally pouring out her life to Jesus. Every time we read of Mary, we find her in this position. 
She is always at the feet of Jesus, listening to him and learning from him. Doesn't this reflect how we should be? Doesn't this reflect the kind of life that we are supposed to live? One that is devoted to Christ in a manner that we are constantly at the feet of Jesus, studying his word and worshiping him with our time. What would it look like for us to pour out our lives for Christ? Often the visual I get in my life is of breaking open the ointment and pouring out some of it at Jesus' feet. Sadly, I have to say that that I do this. Sometimes I can see myself as holding back. Mary didn't hold back. Mary poured all of the ointment a very costly ointment maybe you can identify with this today maybe you might in evaluating find that you might be holding back in some way and so the question is are you like I find myself so often are you looking at the feet of Jesus and saying that should be enough I can pour out a little And that be enough. As Pastor Ben pointed out last week, our joy in Christ is inseparable from our obedience to Him. And often we feel the call through the Holy Spirit to dedicate ourselves more to Him, to give more of our time to Him, but we don't do so. So the question is, what will it cost you to be obedient to Christ. Could it cost you your social standing? Often our young people today experience this. They're faced with the demands of being accepted within our current cultural climate. These pressures can be present for us as adults as well. We feel these pressures. These are real to us. The need for approval of man over the approval of God is a very real struggle for us, is it not? We feel this. Is this not the essence of what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, when he says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We feel the urge of the Holy Spirit to share our faith with others, but we often fail to do so because we know it will be awkward. It's always awkward to us at first, isn't it? But yet we do feel that call. Be be obedient to that call. The joy that we experience in that is overwhelming. Or worse, we examine it and we say, It could jeopardize our jobs or our perceived well-being. Notice I said perceived. It's because we think of the mind of the flesh often. And we want to preserve our social status. Or we want to preserve what we think might be the way that we are provided for. But we are certainly called to be providers for our families, but we dare not resist the urge to be obedient. I think of John Bunyan, 
Many of you are familiar with John Bunyan. You've read Pilgrim's Progress, and you know his story. Bunyan sat in a prison with a prison door wide open, but he dare not resist the urge to be obedient. He refused to go through that, that, that door that was wide open for him. He didn't walk through it. He was told that if he would simply agree not to preach the gospel, he, would, he could go home to his wife and his children. Among those children was a daughter who was blind. How hard that must have been for Bunyan. For him to realize that all he had to do was say, no, I will not preach the gospel. I will simply not preach the gospel, walk through the door, and take care of my family. I will be with my daughter who is blind. But he could not do it. In good conscience, he refused to do it. But he did not refuse the call of the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit's call upon his life was to preach the gospel. And trusting God for us, this can be very hard, but we must do so. Being attuned to and obedient to the guidance of the Holy Spirit is of utmost importance in our lives as Christians. We must do this. Mary certainly knew that the, the potential cost to worship Jesus in this way. She knew that it could cost her her social standing, which she had great social standing in Bethany. But she did it anyway. She loved Jesus so much that there was nothing that could hold her back from worshiping Him in this manner. Characteristic number two. Mary's devotion to Christ is extravagant. Mary's devotion to Christ is set in polar contrast to Judas's lack thereof. While Mary is extravagant in her gift to, to Christ Jesus, Judas uses the excuse of this being a waste. He being focused on money regards Mary's worship as being wasteful. As John points out in verse 6, Judas is a thief. He cloaks his obsession with money with the excuse that the nard could have been used and the proceeds could have been used to feed the poor. We know that in just five days, the depths of Judas's depravity will be exposed as he sells Jesus for a measly 30 pieces of silver. Oh, but his love for money was so strong that he could not resist. What does this tell us today? But in evaluating his excuse for why Mary should not have, been, uh, should not have done such a thing, we get a glimpse of how easy it is for us to be tempted to be more man-focused than to be God-focused. It is the delicate balance of us being the church, being the body of Christ, the second Eve, the helpmate to Christ himself, prioritizing our finances and our time and our service. It is often that we turn the page of importance upside down and read it wrongly. We, the church, often place our main focus upon feeding and clothing the poor or championing social injustices while neglecting our first priority, which is to worship God. John Piper, as many of you have read, has rightly said missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. 
Missions exist because worship exists. Because worship does not. He goes on to say, There will be no passion to draw others to our worship where there is no passion for worship. His point is that we are to be a people who are obsessed with worshiping Christ passionately. That we are to focus our worship on Christ and from this worship will flow our good works. Now, this is not to neglect good works. We certainly should never neglect work, good works. The Apostle Paul, through divine inspiration, in Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is a both and. These are to both exist in the life of a Christian. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism teaches us that our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We all know that one, our, one of our favorites to come to because it guides us. But the Westminster Confessions of Faith in chapter 16, paragraph 2 of Good Works states this, These good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of the adversaries, and glorify God, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that, having their faith unto holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. What we read here is the assurance that good works do indeed glorify God. The point here is that we must, like Mary, glorify God by first focusing our worship on Christ. The birthplace of our good works must be at the feet of Jesus. That is what Mary is doing here. Say that again. The birthplace of our good works must be at the feet of Jesus. If it is not, they will not be good works at all. For they will be but, in the words of Augustine, splendid vices, devoid of faith. But notice with me that Christ accepts Mary's worship and rebukes, Jesus, uh, rebukes Judas. Look with me at verse 7 and verse 8. They read, Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you have always, you have with you always, but me you do not always have. Now don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. He is not saying that the poor don't matter and that we are not supposed to uh, focus our efforts and our finances on them. We indeed are. He is setting the order of priority straight. He's turning the page from being upside down to being right side up. It is always to be the priority of the Christian to exalt Christ. But all too often, it is the needs of the man that is trumpeted louder in the church than the glories of God. Shamefully, this is very common from the pulpit. Again, 
The needs of men must always be secondary to the exaltation of Christ. Worshiping Christ, again, is the place where our good works begin from. We must be at the feet of Christ. And may God grant that we will be like Mary in rightly ordering our priorities to worship Him first. Mary is extravagant in her willingness to worship Him with a gift of much value. She gives the best that she has without holding back. She pours out all of the pound of this expensive nard. This 300 denarii value, this is an entire year's wages. But she finds Christ to be of such value that it doesn't matter to her. And so she pours it all out, not holding any back. So the question becomes, how am I using my resources? I certainly can't pretend to know your circumstance, but I do know that as Christians, our financial focus is to be, first and foremost, on the furtherance of the kingdom of God. All our resources are a gift from God. And they not only come from Him, but they also belong to Him. One whose life has been radically transformed by the grace of God finds value in what is not of this world. This is not a call to poverty, but a reorientation to that which matters most. If we have experienced His grace... Sustaining the proclamation of the gospel becomes the most important thing in our life. Jesus in Matthew 13 teaches us of the pearl of great value. And he teaches us that the pearl of great value is the kingdom itself. And so why would we not want to focus our finances in that direction? It's a work of the Spirit to lead us to that. It's a work of Christ in our hearts to lead us to this lordship that he has over our finances as well. This frees us from the bondage of holding on to what matters the least. We gain from this. Often we think of it as a loss, but it is a gain. The joy, again, of obedience to Christ is found in this way as well. Being obedient with our finances. For many, the bondage is the constant seeking and withholding of money for ourselves or for our businesses or for our institutions. The love and devotion to Christ frees us by planting in our hearts the desire to put our resources to the work for the building up of the kingdom of God. It is what matters most. It is the pearl of great price. For us to hold tight to what we perceive as our fortunes, now remember, this is no big, no matter how big or how small. For many of us, it's small. But still, if we cling to it, it is not good. As we learn through what Paul teaches, it can also be dangerous to our souls. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul in, the first, in his first letter to Timothy. But godliness with contentment is great gain. 
For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Notice that he says many have wandered away from the faith because of their love of money. Remember, Judas experienced the graces of being in the presence of Christ. He heard his teachings for three years. And yet, in the end, what did he do? We know the Bible teaches us that he never was in Christ. If he had been, he wouldn't have fallen away. We know that. But as we read in Hebrews 6, we must be very cautious because when we have experienced the graces of God, we are called to be firm in our faith. And we see one in this example of Judas who experienced the graces. He tasted of the graces, yet he fell away. Certainly, this must be frightening to us as we evaluate how we approach our finances and understand that seeking that to hold on to financial excess can actually be a hindrance to our faith. Paul is teaching us to be like Mary. God who supplies all our needs also gives us contentment in Him. Notice that He mentions that we will be content with what God gives us to meet our necessities. He, through sanctifying our hearts, chips away at our desire for more and more of this world and replaces it with a desire for more and more of His kingdom. And we can praise Him for this as we look in our lives and we see this change. He transforms us from a heart that looks like Judas to a heart that looks like Mary as we actively trust in Him to provide all our needs. Notice, actively. We must actively look to Him in faith. We must actively understand and look to Him, knowing that He is the one who provides for us. And by doing so, have faith in the fact that if we are extravagant, that He will still meet our needs. Has Jesus not taught us in Matthew 6, 31-33, saying, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. We must always be evaluating. This matter not only applies to us individually, but to us as a church. We must always be evaluating and praying about whether we are using God's resources for the furtherance of the kingdom. And I thank God that he has placed in this place people in place to be able to serve in that manner. 
I thank God that he has put men in place to be able to be prayerfully considering how that we use our resources, that we not squander them, but also that we not hold on to them. Because I am also very thankful for our missions that we do in this church, that we are committed to carrying the gospel throughout the world because that is the great commission to us, that we take the gospel into the further, furthest reaches of this world and that we teach them to obey what Christ has taught. For God is not pleased when we either squander away or excessively conserve what he has blessed us with. Those blessings are to be used for kingdom work. As Jesus clearly says just a few verses before this, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy or where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert's book, The Purpose of the Church, DeYoung points out that financial excess can be an obstacle to our faith. He says this, that, uh, saying that this is why Luke records the story of the rich young ruler. He says, yes, wealth is a monumental danger. It can be a deadly snare. He notes that Luke follows up the story of the rich young ruler with the account of Zacchaeus to demonstrate how the rich can be saved. He explains that the rich don't have to divest themselves of everything above necessity, but they must repent of swindling, make amends for wrongdoing, and give generously from their abundance. So God forbid that any of us serve the master of money, for it can be dangerous to our souls. But rather, let us be like Mary who worship, worships Christ Jesus extravagantly. But it may not be money. For many of us, an obstacle to full devotion to Christ can be manifest in the use of our time and our talents. In these very busy days, it is very easy for us to fall into a pattern of refusing to be completely devoted in the act of protecting our time. I'm guilty of this myself. Being willing to sacrifice our time to volunteer, or in many cases, just being a friend to those who are in need. We experience these opportunities every day, and the Spirit is leading us many times just to be a friend to someone who may be in need. And in doing so, many times, that requires us sacrificing maybe that time that we've held to ourselves as my time. If we love God and we love His church, we'll be extravagant in devoting both our time and our talents to Christ. Where did our talents come from? We must not hide them. We must share them. Characteristic number three. Mary's devotion to Christ is manifested in her humility. It is commonly understood that the family of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus was one of very good social standing. Such social standing often leads to pridefulness, 
but not in the case of Mary. In this very public setting, she is free of any pride that would inhibit her worship. This is an example for us. She is so in love with Christ that she anoints his feet. It must be noted that it would be more fitting, would it not, if she had anointed his head? But in the state of humbleness that she is in, she finds it more fitting to anoint his feet. And she goes even further than just anointing his feet. She then, as we've said before, takes down her hair. At this time, for a woman of her day, Mary's hair would have been the most honorable attribute that she had. And yet she was willing to unbind her hair and humble herself before her king and wipe his feet with her hair. Such a lowly and selfless act. But she uses it to honor the Lord. Certainly, Mary's honorable act is an act of genuine devotion. It was not an act guided by the approval of men. For if it were, she certainly didn't get it, did she? She did not at all. But she did receive the approval of Christ. In the same way, we must humble ourselves before Christ with the same desire. I often think about R.C. Sproul's comment that he had made where he said that we can never truly know the motivations of our heart. But he goes on to say that even, even at that, we, may, we must never use that as an excuse for an action. The Christian must be constantly, prayerfully evaluating our motives and asking that God write our hearts in these matters. We must firmly hold to our Lord's teaching that if we seek our reward on earth, we must not expect to receive it in heaven. This is an eternal perspective that our devotion to Him is rewarded in heaven, not on earth. In conclusion... May Mary's courageous, extravagant, and humble adoration of Jesus be an example for how we worship Him ourselves. May by this example and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we be a people that fill our homes, our places of work, our places of worship, and our places of recreation with the fragrance of our devotion to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray.